Welcome to the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman, where Jerry reads a chapter from the New Testament and gives us key insights and life applications along the way. For more information about the Solid Life Journal and reading plans, visit solidlives.com. And now, let's get into today's reading. So we're in chapter 4 now. It's a, a rather short chapter, only 11 verses. And because this changes now, uh, from the first three chapters to a whole run that's going to go now through Revelation 22. I wanted to take this opportunity on this shorter chapter to bring some inter- introduction, or I should say some additional introduction to the book of Revelation. Let me give you now four interpretation approaches or interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation that scholars, various scholars over the centuries and today, how they approach interpreting the book of Revelation. Number one, a symbolic approach. A symbolic approach. A symbolic approach looks to primarily gain insight from Revelation into the nature of spiritual opposition and struggle at all times and for all believers. It does not embrace historical or prophetic past or future applications of symbols and contents. So, in other words, just sort of taking this, the symbolism of what it's saying in the whole book of Revelation, and what does that mean for us as believers today, no matter what age they're living in? So, uh, not really embracing uh, that part of this is to things that happened in the past, part of it is for things that are happening in the future. No, just taking the whole thing and saying, how does it apply to us as believers, whoever the believers are today? That's a symbolic approach. Second, a preterist approach. The preterist approach views revelation as presenting the spiritual struggle of the first century believers with the Roman Empire and non-Messianic Jewish opposition. It sees the prophetic content of the book as completely in the past, except for the literal return of Christ. It's helpful because it calls us to fully see the background of the book. So the preterist view or approach to interpreting Revelation really calls us to see how does the original audience of the book of Revelation back in the first century, how would they view this? But it also, unfortunately, sees everything except for the literal return of Jesus as things that have already happened. They already happened in history. The third approach, the historical approach, looks at Revelation as representing the historical progress from the time of Jesus' ascension until his second coming and the establishment of New Jerusalem. Days and calculations in the historical approach are seen as symbolic of years. This approach shows that throughout history, there have been many situations that parallel Revelation's content. And so, of course, throughout history, depending on what part of the world you're in, there are parallels to things that happen in the book of Revelation. And so it sees these things as a history that the whole book is sort of a history of the church uh, uh, through from the time of Jesus' ascension to the second coming. And then the fourth is the futurist approach. The futurist approach sees the first three chapters as historical, yet quite relevant to the end-time church. 
and sees, well, I should say, and quite relevant to the church of all history, including the end-time church. And the futurist approach sees chapters 4 through 22 as describing the great tribulation period just before the second coming of Jesus. Futurists often see value in the other interpretations or the other interpretive approaches, but see the ultimate and best application of Revelation as primarily describing future events. This kind of futurist best describes me, Jerry Dearman. Uh, in other words, I believe that even though the first uh, few chapters are describing events that happened in the past that are relevant for us today, certainly, but from chapter 4 through 22, I, I see Revelation as talking uh, primarily about a future seven-year tribulation period that is going to happen just before the second coming, the judgment of the world when Jesus comes back. And so I personally believe that that is the proper approach to interpretation, not getting into all the details, which uh, there could be many viewpoints on the details, but just with these four main interpretive approaches, I adopt the futurist interpretive approach. Now, let me also hit, before we read chapter four, three theological persu persuasions that affect people's approach to interpreting the book of Revelation. One is, there's a category called premillennialists. And premillennialists believe that a literal thousand-year messianic millennial age of peace on earth precedes the full establishment of the new heaven and earth. Most futurists are premillennialists, as I am. I believe that in the future, there is a thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal thousand-year reign that is coming, and we're premillennialists. We're before, we're living in the age before the thousand-year reign of Christ. Second of the three is amillennialists. And amillennialists believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ is symbolic of the present rule of the church, either by the saints already in heaven or by the ongoing reign of believers on earth. So in other words, it's not a literal thousand-year period to come. This is what we're living in right now, that Jesus is ruling right now in the millennial reign through the church on the earth. And then post-millennialists believe that the church will so succeed in spreading the gospel that the whole world will come into a glorious thousand-year age, either literal or symbolic, after which there will be a brief rebellion and the second coming of Jesus. So, really, that we're already in this age, but we're going to so succeed. We're going to uh, bring the world to Christ, so to speak, and then it culminates in Jesus reigning. So, that that's the post-millennialist view. I am a premillennialist in uh, my persuasion because I really believe that when the Bible talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, that is literally a thousand-year reign that's going to come uh, and commence at his second coming. Okay, so let's get into chapter four now. And as we go through the book, the rest of the book, I should say, you're going to see how these pers persuasions and interpretive approaches 
play into how we look at these. And by the way, let me just mention this too. I'm really wanting to read this devotionally. In other words, I'm wanting to read with you the book of Revelation so that God can speak into our lives because this book was not meant just to argue about eschatology or end time things. This book was meant to prepare us for things to come, prepare us for the end of the age, prepare us for eternal life that we may overcome and that we may be uh, the people of God that we're called to be. So we want to make sure that we're receiving it like that and not just distracted only with end times, though that's very important. Okay, chapter four, the book of Revelation. And here's what it says. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice, the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. You remember in chapter one, John said, I heard a voice behind me and it was like the voice of a trumpet turned out to be the Lord Jesus. And so he says, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. So it wasn't just, dun, dun, dun. no, it was a, like a blast, but the voice was speaking. There were words coming and saying, watch this, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So notice it's something of a rapture that is happening here. I don't believe that the rapture of the church fits right here at the beginning as in terms of chronology. But John experiences something like this, where this voice says, come up here and I will show you things, watch this, which must take place after this. So he's living and writing about 96 AD. But this voice is saying, come up here. Now you've written the letters to the seven churches, you, those seven letters that Jesus gave, but now I'm going to show you things that are going to take place after this. In other words, I think there's a division here, and uh, the letters and chapters 1 through 3 are historical. They've already happened. Uh, chapters 4 through 22, these are things to come. And I think this verse here makes it clear. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, this really reminds us of Paul saying, I know a man that was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Paul, I think, was taking a humble approach and not wanting to brag on himself. But nonetheless, he had something of an experience like this. Well, John said, I was in the spirit and, and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like an emerald. I mean, when you're talking about an emerald, an emerald is a something solid. So in other words, this is not just like the rainbow that we see in the clouds. This was a rainbow like an emerald. I mean, this is something that looks solid, but beautiful, like a jewel, but it's a rainbow. And he goes on to say, uh, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So let me just stop right there. I want to talk about 
those 24 thrones around the throne. Now, why would there be 24 thrones around the throne? Well, numbers have significance. Now, we don't always interpret numbers the right way, I don't think, but I think sometimes we do. And I think God wants us to recognize that, for example, he created seven days in a week, 12 months in a year. And so God helps us, helps us to have these breakdowns, and the seven is the number of completion or fullness. Well, 12 is a number of governance. Uh, and so you remember in the Old Testament, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had 12 sons who became the, what, 12 tribes of Israel. And then, of course, Jesus chose how many disciples? 12, whom he called apostles. And so uh, when Judas lost his place in Acts chapter 1, Peter quoted a couple of verses from the Old Testament that showed that somebody else should take his office because it was prophesied that one would be lost. And so Matthias ended up, by direction of the, the Lord through the lots, he ended up taking the 12th place. But notice they needed 12. There was a place to be filled, a role to be filled. Well, could it be that these 24 thrones are literal thrones, which I believe that they are, and I think we'll see as we go on in the next um, couple of chapters here, that there are literally 24 elders seated at, on these 24 thrones. Could it be that there are 12 patriarchs, uh, talking about from the 12 tribes of Israel, and that the 12 apostles here, including Matthias, are seated on these 12 thrones, uh, representing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, representing the 12 patriarchs, representing the 12 apostles, could it be that that's exactly what they are? I, I would guess yes, though it doesn't specifically say that. But nonetheless, 24 thrones and uh, these 24 elders were sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their head. They, they've won, they've uh, finished the race and such, and they've got their crown, crowns of life on their head. And so it goes on to say, it talks about the seven lamps were burning, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, does that mean that there's not just one Holy Spirit, but there are seven Holy Spirits? No, I don't think so. There's some, some, something symbolic here that uh, I won't touch on now. Uh, verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass. Now, uh, a lot of this relates right back to the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, because many of these things existed uh, in those places of worship, which were patterns, by the way, which were made after the pattern of the real in heaven. John is seeing the real. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in other words, he's trying to describe and saying it's not just like normal water, like the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon. He's saying, no, what I saw was, I mean, this, this sea of glass was like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, you know, some of these relate back to uh, prophetic passages, for example, in 
Ezekiel and other places. And so are these real creatures that are in heaven that are there and we'll see them when we get there? Or are these symbols of things that have spiritual meanings? We don't know for sure, but nonetheless, I tend to think that John was just seeing what he saw and describing it. So I would tend to think that we will see these. Uh, and even though they do have uh, meanings behind them, I tend to think that we'll see them when we get to heaven. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, day or night, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now watch this. Can you imagine what we would call 24 hours a day? I don't think they have days and nights quite like that there. But their day and night, however that happens, constantly holy, holy, holy. Now why is that? Because God deserves to be credited with who he is day and night. He deserves this kind of worship. Doesn't mean he's demanding it. But he deserves it. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Just declaring who he is constantly. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, watch this, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders. Now, when it says whenever they would say this and give glory. So that would mean, yes, they did it day and night, but that doesn't mean that they're doing it like without pause. In other words, it's not holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I think that they, they would say it, and then there'd be a time of pause. Why do I believe it? Because it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. So it just said that these 24 elders were sitting on these thrones. But now it says, when these creatures would declare the glory of the Lord, that these 24 elders would fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Now, they belong to them, the elders, but notice they cast their crown before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Let me tell you, when we get to heaven, oh, may it not wait till we get to heaven, but when we get to heaven, we're going to realize the majesty of God, the creator God, that he is the owner of the world. He's the owner of us. He, all things belong to him. And we're going to realize how uh, magnificent he is, how powerful he is, and we're going to realize how completely and utterly dependent on him we have always been. <laughs> Without him, we would not even exist. Isn't that true? And so these elders in eternity, let me tell you, they may be revered as patriarchs or apostles, but oh, before the throne of God, when the declaration of God's holiness and mightiness sounds forth, Oh, and they realize, oh, we are so honored to be here in his presence. We may be seated on thrones and be honored, but oh, we're going to cast our crowns before the Lord. Because if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be saved. We wouldn't be redeemed and such. See, 
So we can see that part of the book of Revelation is, yes, to prepare us for things to come, but also to teach us right now reality and how we ought to be worshiping and giving God glory, honoring him and presenting ourselves before him. <laughs> Praise God. Oh, this is so powerful. And so, oh, I've got so much more here. Looking forward to chapter 5 tomorrow. Thank you for joining us for the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman. And thank you to those of you who have partnered with Solid Lives to help get this daily podcast and other resources like it to thousands of people around the world. If you would like to partner with Solid Lives, visit solidlives.com give. To find out more about the ministry of Solid Lives, how you can be a part of this church planting and disciple making movement, or for more great teachings and resources by Jerry, visit solidlives.com. We also want to invite you to check out Jerry's other podcast called The Jerry Dearman Podcast. Here, Jerry shares with us at least weekly from God's Word, challenging us and equipping us to fulfill the amazing plan that God has for our lives. You can find links to this podcast as well as Jerry's YouTube channel online at solidlives.com. Thank you again so much for joining us, and we'll see you right here tomorrow as we jump into the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman.